Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, November 21st, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. The podcast features Louise Mirror, New York Historical's President and CEO, thanking Roger Hertog, Chairman Emeritus of New York Historical Society's Board of Trustees, who gives an introduction to the program. Following the introduction, legal scholars Matthew C. Waxman and Philip C. Bobbitt discuss presidential powers during wartime. Enjoy the podcast. This auditorium really is a a tribute, of course, to Robert H. Smith, the benefactor, but uh, I would say even more to the point um, to our great chairman emeritus, Roger Hertog. So we all owe him a huge debt of gratitude. We were, I think, about maybe even two-thirds of the way through our major renovation project, uh, which entailed really redoing the facade of our building and uh, virtually everything else on the first and lower levels of of this building. When Roger said, you know, we have all of these um, wonderful speakers at New York Historical, and uh, we really need to give them an auditorium that is worthy of the great intellect that inhabits the space uh, on a regular basis here. And so... um, Instead of having the old auditorium, which you may recall had half of the seats facing one another, like church pews, um, and uh, a very, um, really very limited opportunity to actually view whoever was on the stage, we have all the bells and whistles in the world uh, now and a great and comfortable space to welcome guests to great programs like this evening. So... I want to thank Roger especially for his um, amazing ideas. That was just one of them, tiny fraction, uh, tip of the iceberg, and, um, uh, and everything that he's really done on behalf of helping this institution towards its, um, its current state of preeminence among history organizations. So thank you. Okay. It's your turn, Roger. Good evening. So if you're not a lawyer, which most of us probably aren't, reading the Columbia Law Review is unlikely to get you very excited. With all due respect to our two great lawyers here, lawyer professors. But earlier this year, Columbia's Law professor Matthew Waxman, co-chair of the university's Cybersecurity Center and also co-chair of the Program on National Security and Law, wrote an article that was truly intriguing, and I think you'll all agree, and was really worthy of serious discussion. It's called The Power to Wage War Successfully. It touched on many things that we at the society are interested, all of us in one form or another are interested in it. First and foremost, it's centered on a truly historic figure that sadly, few of us know much about anymore 
that has basically been lost to history. I don't like that phrase, but it's been, he's been lost to time. It's the extraordinary Charles Evans Hughes. Now, Mr. Hughes had what anybody, I think, would say is an extraordinarily, an extraordinary public service career, sort of unparalleled in most, by most measures. Mr. Hughes served as governor of New York State from 1907 through 1910. He was then named to the U.S. Supreme Court by William Howard Taft. Four years into that term, he accepted the Republican nomination for president, narrowly losing the Electoral College to Governor to then what was then become President Wilson because of just 4,000 votes in California. In 1921, President Warren Harding named Charles Evans Hughes Secretary of State. He served until 1925. In 1930, he entered government service again as President Herbert Hoover's choice for Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So two times he went to serve at the court. He had a remarkable career and a remarkable accomplishments. But our discussion this evening is about a speech that Hughes gave when he held no public office just about 100 years ago, just before the United States entered into World War I. Professor Waxman, who you'll meet in a moment, unearthed from the deep recesses of the Columbia Law School archives. Hughes was an alumnus. He gave all of his archives to the to the law, to the Columbia University, a speech in all of Hughes' contemporaneous notes about that speech. Now, there are very few speeches, other than maybe from presidents at some point in time, that have continued resonance, significance, a hundred years later. The topic sentence of this speech, I only read the title of, I only mentioned the title of the Law Review article, was the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. That's a pretty powerful notion. Hughes' central insight was the Congress and the President, as Commander-in-Chief, are entrusted by the Constitution with immense power. The power of the draft, for one thing. The power to send citizens outside the country to fight. The power to do what is ever necessary to win a war. The power to wage war successfully continues to echo in the ongoing legal debate of presidential war powers during and after wartime. The significance of this talk in 1917 is especially consequential when one considers that the Congress after 9-11 gave President George W. Bush the power to go to war, the power to go to war in essence successfully, against stateless terrorism without a clear endpoint. 
16 years later, we're still operating under this congressional authorization. Bringing up many questions, but amongst the most significant is, when do congressional war authorizations end? If ever. I don't want to make this introduction any longer-winded than it already is, but this evening, I should have said, will everyone please turn over? Louise usually says this, you know, any object that makes sounds. But I don't want to make it any longer than longer-winded than it is, but this evening we're fortunate to have, and I say this with, with all due consideration, two master teachers, two master law professors, discussing this article. Mac Watsming, who I've spoken about before, and a good friend of the New York Historical Society, Philip Bobbitt, president, professor of jurisprudence at Columbia, and one of the nation's leading constitutional theorists. Professors, class is now called to order. Our legal education is in your hands. God help us. <laughs> In the 20th century, the U.S. Supreme Court has generally declined to precisely define the contours of the power to make war, usually on the grounds that this is a political question. In the absence of some definitive decision by the court, how do we decide what the contours of this awesome power are? And this approach would apply not only to questions like war power, but really to any of the consequential questions around executive power that are not amenable to a judicial resolution. Do we simply say it's whatever the president says it is? Well, Matt Wex is going to help us answer that question. <laughs> what do you say, Professor Waxman? So, um, well, first of all, let, let me begin by saying um, what, what a great pleasure it is to be here with with Philip Bobbitt, um, because I, I would say that um, the, the two people uh, who have most influenced my thinking about constitutional war powers are now uh, Charles Evans Hughes and, and Philip Bobbitt. Um, and, 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 and actually, um, um, there's a, a central insight that runs through both of their, both of their work. Um, you know, uh, uh, as, as, as Roger Hertog said, Almost exactly 100 years ago, Charles Evans Hughes gives this famous address where he's, he's articulating what the Constitution means about war powers and how war powers are allocated. And, 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 and the key line that, that grows from that speech is this idea that the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully, that the Constitution endowed the United States of America, the, the government as a whole, with the power to defend itself and defend itself successfully. He also, he also says in this, in, 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 in this uh, very poetic conclusion, he says, the Constitution marches. And, uh, and, and what, what he means by that, I think, um, is, uh, is very similar to what I see as, the, as, as a central insight of, of your own work, which is that you really can't understand the U.S. Constitution, constitutional law of war powers, without putting them in the context of military strategy, without understanding at any given time and in any given era um, how wars are fought, 
how the United States is defending itself, how it is using military force to achieve its strategic ends, including its, its basic defense. Uh, and so, to me, uh, uh, it's no surprise that uh, the meaning of the Constitution, the contours of presidential war powers in particular, have, uh, have developed and evolved over time. Uh, you know, if, if, if you to, just to, to, to make sure everybody's sort of up to speed on some on some basics, the text of the Constitution lays out some a, 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 a few basic allocations of power, some of which you're, you're probably familiar with. Um, in Article One, Congress has given the power of the purse, and, and, and in addition to that, the power to raise and, and support an army and a navy. It's also given the power to declare war, whereas the president in Article Two is designated command commander-in-chief and, and, and chief executive. Well, that text alone doesn't really answer very much because those terms have multiple meanings and they, they still leave open some very big questions like in the absence of a declaration of war, what can the president do? Can the president use military force? So the text alone doesn't get you very far. Um, uh, another technique that we as lawyers often use, and this is what one of the things you referred to, is we look to uh, judicial doctrine. What have the courts told us the law means? Um, and this is an area, constitutional war powers, uh, where courts have, for the most part, said it's, it, it's up to you guys, meaning the political branches, to work it out among your among yourselves, um, there are s- some important cases from the so-called quasi war with France during the John Adams administration. There are some important uh, civil war cases, but for the most part, the the courts haven't answered the toughest questions in this area. I think the answer, therefore, to, to what is law in this area, has to be derived from looking at the patterns of practice among the political branches of government, uh, uh, Congress and the president, and especially how those practices and expectations have, have changed over time. You know, that strikes me as a very uh, wise answer because while we're all accustomed to case law and precedent, developing doctrine for the courts, we don't really pay much attention to the fact that there are doctrinal developments in Congress and with respect to the executive. And that doctrine will change as the military, strategic, and diplomatic challenges change. So one way to keep up with those challenges is to see how our governments have practiced their war powers over the last uh, two centuries. One thing I know that most of you are thinking about is, whatever happened to the War Powers Act? This was a, a resolution that came out of the sort of Vietnam Watergate era, And it was supposed to provide Congress a check on the president, both a reporting check and a termination check by uh, some subgroup of of a Congress that would get the president to cease and desist if they chose. What's the status of this now? Sure. It's It's called the... War Powers Resolution, in fact, it's a, it is a joint resolution, which is a kind of statute because it's passed by both houses and signed into law by the president or passed over as veto. 
Sure. Well, uh, and let me put it in a little bit of historical context, um, because I think to understand how significant this 1973 act by Congress was, one needs to understand what had happened between the 1780s or 1790s and, and, and the Vietnam War. And in the early republic, um, it was mostly the case that Congress did exercise quite a bit of control over uh, military adventures abroad. There was very little that the president could do in practice without having a, a, a congressional backing or the pres- that the president would do without having a, a, a congressional backing. Um, but context is important here. Um, you're talking about a time in the early republic where the United States didn't have a, a large standing peacetime army or, or, or navy. Um, our, our, our main line of defense was this giant moat called the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which would, we'd hope, give us time in the event of, uh, of, of war clouds uh, 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 coming to, to mobilize military forces, probably from, from state militias. Um, and it was a, an article of faith in American strategic doctrine that we were going to avoid so-called entangling alliances. The idea of the first few presidential administrations shared across them was the way to keep the United States out of wars, out of costly, unnecessary wars, was was to avoid binding ourselves to these always fighting European powers. Well, after World War II, a lot of those contextual factors, a lot of those basic assumptions get turned on their head. Uh, uh, After World War II, um, instead of having almost no peacetime army, we have a permanent large peacetime army. Because of technology, air power, for example, missiles, we can no longer depend on oceans to, uh, to protect us. And rather than eschewing entangling alliances, um, we decide that the best way to keep us out of wars is to uh, uh, line up uh, and engage in a whole network of entangling alliances with our NATO allies, with our Southeast Asian allies, uh, our our individual partners in in, in Northeast Asia. that and probably the most important event there is 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 the Korean War. That's the the largest war the United States uh, uh, has engaged in without any congressional authorization, any explicit congressional authorization. Um, but but Vietnam is this traumatic event um, because uh, 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 up until then the United States had found itself after every war arguable exception of, 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 of the Civil War, in a stronger position than it was before. Um, but, but Vietnam really, really tests that. And it, it, my own interpretation is, notwithstanding the fact that Congress had given President Johnson authorization to engage in, in, in major escalation of that war, Congress decided at the, at the end of that war in 1973, we need, to, we, we need to try to bring things back to an earlier era where, uh, where, where the president cannot engage in military adventurism without congressional authorization. So it passes the 1973 War Powers Act or War Powers Resolution, which does um, a couple of main things. First, it requires that in engaging in, in military operations abroad, the president must report them quickly to, to Congress. 
Um, but more important, uh, uh, the War Powers Resolution stipulates that if the president engages in, in military action abroad, engages in, 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 quote, military hostilities, that after 60 days, if Congress has not uh, uh, explicitly authorized those military operations, the president needs to bring the, bring the troops home. Uh, uh, this was an attempt by Congress to, to, to try to reestablish its primary role in authorizing uh, and limiting uh, the use of, of military force uh, abroad. Uh, Nixon vetoed it, but uh, in a rare example of a, a national security veto being overridden, um, con- Congress overrides that veto. And since that time, though, I think the War Powers Resolution has been, has been largely watered down. And to me, the, the interesting thing about it, 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 it's no surprise that the executive branch might try to water down this, 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 uh, this, this attempted straitjacket that Congress has put on it. The more interesting thing, in my view, is that Congress, I think, has been complicit in that watering down. Um, because Congress, uh, I think Congress, for the most part, is kind of happy with the with, with a with a, a situation in which the president uh, uh, has quite a bit of discretion to use military force, and Congress can sit back and decide after the fact whether it wants to authorize or not. It can sit back and wait, and it can authorize. It can it can it can unauthorize, or it can or or it can just sit and and sit back and wait. And so I think the result has been that this experiment of the War Powers Resolution hasn't hasn't really proven very effective in uh, in either constraining the president's power to use military force or in trying to generate some genuine deliberation between the political branches about when the use of force is most appropriate. Might might be helpful just to drop a footnote to what Professor Waxman was saying about Korea. Dean Acheson, uh, Secretary of State for President Truman, took the view that the UN Security Council resolution adopted by the Security Council, the Soviets, as you know, were boycotting that session, so they didn't veto it, and we got a otherwise unanimous vote authorizing the use of force in the Korean Peninsula was sufficient authority for the president to act. He didn't rely on the commander-in-chief's authority. He relied on the passage that requires the president to faithfully execute the laws and that these laws included our treaties and that one of those treaties was the UN Charter. President Johnson, by contrast, thought that Truman had made a mistake He thought that Atchison was wrong and that he could remedy this by going to the Congress and getting, in this case, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. He he later said, I thought if they were with me on the takeoff, they'd be with me on the landing. He said, I forgot about the parachute. (laughs) When I write about uh, these matters, I take the position that there are at least four ways by which we can go to war constitutionally. One is if there is a sudden or imminent attack on the U.S. Second way is by declaration of war, which has been rather rarely used. A third way is by statute. And the fourth way is by treaty. Would you agree with that rough sketch? I would agree with that rough sketch, but I'd use each of those four to illustrate how much 
the world and American grand strategy has evolved um, since the early republic and why, therefore, the allocation of war powers among the branches have, have changed. So to, to, to run through each of the, the four, you said um, one way in which uh, uh, the United States legally goes to war, constitutionally goes to war, is, is by declaration. And this is a – we'd naturally uh, uh, arrive at this as part of the list. Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the, the power to declare war. Um, but as, as, as you said, Philip uh, – uh, Declarations of war have fallen out of fashion. The United States has only declared war five times. We've been involved in way more than five wars, but only five times. The War of 1812, Mexican War, Spanish War, World War I, and World War II. As far as I know, no country has declared war since the end of, of World War II. It's sort of gone out of fashion as a matter of, as a matter of, uh, of, of international law. Um, and so uh, uh, instead, the more, I, I think a, a good substitute is a second way that you mentioned, which is by statute or resolution. Um, uh, Congress can authorize the president to use military force. And we've talked about some examples here already. Um, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, a very broad, authorization to use force in 1964 that Johnson obtains from, uh, from Congress. Uh, in 2001, immediately after the 9-11 attacks, uh, President uh, George W. Bush receives from Congress a very broad authorization um, to use force against al-Qaeda and its, and its, and its allies abroad. Um, so so the, the, the declaration of war uh, has been replaced by this practice of force authorization. And those force authorizations are often very, very broad in scope. They, they're, they're, they're often um, phrased not just as the United States is at war with country X, but uh, here's a threat that the United States is facing, and the president is authorized to use, let's say, all necessary and appropriate force or some such language in order to eradicate that threat. The third uh, example you gave is a, an attack or an imminent attack. And I think even the framers, you know, although this isn't written in the Constitution, there's a lot of evidence that the, the drafters of the Constitution recognize that if the, the United States were actually attacked, that the president would, would be fully empowered to repel that attack. The more interesting question, I think, now comes in the era of nuclear weapons, of uh, uh, dealing with, I think this was your term, in a common legal term, dealing with an imminent attack. Because how do we think about, how do we, how do we decide when the threat of nuclear war or nuclear attack is sufficiently imminent? This was something that uh, President Kennedy wrestled with in the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is something that the Bush administration wrestled with after 9-11. This is something that the United States government is wrestling with now with regard to, to North Korea. And finally, uh, uh, treaty, um, going to war by treaty. And, and, and this refers back to a point I, I made earlier, that you know, a, a basic assumption among the drafters of, 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 the, of the Constitution and, and the early presidents was we weren't going to have many, if any, mutual defense pacts. They were dangerous. They were mutual defense pacts were going to pull us unnecessarily into dangerous and costly wars. Now we see them, that, that's, that, that argument has been turned on its head. And the way we've, we've, we've organized our, our, our foreign policy since World War II is that we ought to bind ourselves 
um, to these alliance relationships because that's what helps keep the peace. A good friend of ours, uh, Professor Ackerman at uh, Yale, has written a series of op-ed pieces and essays attacking the administration's use of the authorization for the use of military force in Iraq in 2003 and a year earlier against al-Qaeda and the forces that attacked New York and Washington as the basis for action against the Islamic State. And not just the Islamic State, for action against the Haqqani network, for action against uh, associated forces in Somalia, in uh, Niger, in Mali, and many other places. His view is that this is a direct violation of law and the president is proceeding unlawfully when he relies on these authorizations for the use of military force. He says, how can it be that the AUMF in the wake of 9-11 can be used against the Islamic State, which didn't exist at the time of those attacks? How can it be used against forces that find themselves at odds with al-Qaeda and have publicly acknowledged to be so. What's your view on this? So I disagree with, with Professor Ackerman on this. Um, and I'd start by, by going back to my earlier point that you know the 2001 force authorization, the AUMF, Authorization for the Use of Military Force, um, is, written, is written very broadly um, to authorize the president to use all necessary and appropriate force <laughs> To, to go after and defend against al-Qaeda and its, and its allies. Now, uh, that's been uh, uh, interpreted over the last 16 years. That's a, a, a law that is still on the books. Um, uh, and the operative language is only 60 words long, but it's, it's the basis of our military operations, as, you know, when, perhaps the, our, the longest war in, in, in history, depending on, 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 on how you count. Uh, 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 but... It's been interpreted uh, uh, expansively in, in multiple directions. As, as, as you say, it's been exp- uh, interpreted expansively geographically. Of course, Congress meant at the time that the United States, that the president could use force, let's say, in Afghanistan. But Congress probably didn't expect that we would also be using force in Yemen, Somalia, North Africa, um, because we didn't know that Al Qaeda was going to spread in in uh, in, in all of those uh, in, in in all of those directions, the resolution's also been expansively interpreted to include a lot of other groups that are only let's say loosely, um, if if at all, still tied to Al Qaeda, and, and that's I think the, the much more controversial interpretation. Now. I'm critical of that interpretation that the 2001 AUMF applies to the Islamic State, which didn't even exist in 2001. That seems that seems counterintuitive. I, I, and, and, and I do agree that that is quite a stretch. It was a stretch that the Obama administration made, um, and, and, and the Trump administration has ha, has continued. Uh, but I'll say this, having, having worked inside the executive branch, um, it is not a surprising interpretation. It is not one I, – I wouldn't uh, expect other presidents or other administrations to make a different legal decision with the, the choice that it faced. Um, and the challenge has been uh, how do you get Congress, a Congress that is hyperpolarized um, and dysfunctional, how do you get it to produce uh, uh, a more 
updated, uh, uh, adaptive, and perhaps better tailored new authorization for the use of military force. This is something that some, some colleagues and I have been, been writing about on, on the Lawfare blog with some ideas about how Congress might rewrite the 2001 authorization. Because I do, I do fully agree with, with Professor Ackerman at, at some level um, that, it is, that it is inappropriate um, both as a matter of policy and principle, that the president continues to rely on that outdated authorization for the use of military force. But I'm a, a pragmatist when I think about when I when I try to think about the solution. And uh, I, 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 right now, the challenge is how do we work with Congress in order to come up with a formula that this Congress can actually pass because we do have uh, needs for continuing military operations against the Islamic State. And that may show some of the similarity between <clears throat> issues that arise under war powers and issues that arise in so many other constitutional uh, zones of uh, controversy. Many of you, when you were uh, undergraduates or perhaps some of you in uh, graduate school, everyone in this room has heard of the doctrine of separation of powers. It's often attributed to James Madison. But that really isn't the system we have. We don't have Montesquieu's system of separated powers. Our system is one of shared and linked powers. There's almost nothing that one of the branches can do. Anytime the branch acts lawfully outside very minor areas like the pardon power, for example, it has to get the buy-in of at least one and usually both branches. So when that cooperation freezes up, you tend to get exaggerated allocations of claims of power in in the other branches. I wanted to ask you what you thought the relationship was of the war power to targeted killing. If we do need a new AUMF, does that mean that the existing practice of lethal drone strikes amounts to extrajudicial killing? So uh, in wars, um, people get killed, and, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a part of war and a pretty big part of war. So is, uh, is, is capture and detention of, of enemy fighters. So I begin from the, the, the proposition that since, at least since, September of 2001, and perhaps earlier, but at least since uh, the September 11th attacks, the United States has been engaged in a war with with al-Qaeda and its allies, and not a war on terror in a, in a rhetorical sense or a metaphorical sense, but an actual, in a legal sense, uh, engaged in armed conflict with, with, with al-Qaeda. So uh, I, I think, um, as, as a, 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 it naturally follows from that, um, that the president has... Uh, I, 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 some, the, the power to engage in 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 in, in lethal targeting. Now, uh, this is uh, that's a, a legal conclusion um, and a policy conclusion that I uh, that I draw and 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 would defend. It's not to say that I'm entirely comfortable with it because this is a war that is different from from other wars in a number of ways. And and one of the ways in which it is different is that it is geographically quite dispersed. 
Um, it is also different in that the enemy doesn't fight in uniforms. There's much more opportunity for, uh, for misidentification or, uh, or, or collateral damage because of the way in which the enemy is engaged in, in, in this war. So, uh, so, so I, I would defend legally and as a matter of policy targeted killing as, as part of the ongoing war against al-Qaeda and its allies. Um, but it is a, a it, it is a particular tool um, that has to be carefully regulated and 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 uh, 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 and, and here 's an area where I would like to see Congress also playing a, 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 an oversight role i mean if, if, philip you you raised a, a, an, an important point earlier, which is that the different branches of government are endowed with different overlapping powers. Um, and I, I, I was critical of Congress before because of its dysfunction in, um, in coming forward and, and being able to pass much legislation at all, let alone an updated force authorization. But we shouldn't, be, we, 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 we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that unless Congress is passing statutes, it's not exercising its powers, it's not acting. That there are other ways in which Congress exercises control, that it shapes defense strategy, it shapes the conduct of war, including the, the possibility, the, the mere threat of, of, of legislation, uh, uh, in, in, in using its oversight powers, including hearings, including uh, uh, just the, 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 the political power that even individual members of Congress or the Senate are able to exert by virtue of their, of their office. I think one question that troubles people in addition to targeted killing, and I don't think it's unique to the current administration, but uh, one's anxieties about this administration may have uh, been increased on this issue, is the degree to which the president has the authority to begin a war with nuclear weapons. The, uh, the, the immediacy of attack, the necessity for deterrence, all play into a centralization of authority. Without that, it's hard to see how deterrence could work. But we don't want a world in which a president could simply push a mythical red button. I don't think we live in that world. I think that uh, the idea that <clears throat> a president can start a war on a whim and that a whole series of conscientious officials in the chain of command will say, war, well, all right, and just carry out some, some a strike, is, uh, is fanciful. But I know you've given some thought about this recently with Richard Betts, who's one of Columbia's, another one of Columbia's real stars in this area. Tell me your thoughts on this. Yeah, so, uh, so let me begin by saying that, I, you know, I, I think probably nothing illustrates better just how far um, American military power has evolved since the, the, the drafting of the Constitution than the, than the creation of nuclear weapons, right? We've gone from a, a world in the 1790s where the president of the United States didn't really have an army at all or a Navy at all, almost, uh, uh, at his disposal without first going to Congress and saying, uh, at, on, on a given occasion, build me one uh, um, or mobilize, uh, call up uh, uh, militias. So, you know, in, in the early republic, uh, uh, there was... 
there wasn't that much opportunity um, for the president to make war without Congress's okay, because the president just didn't have the resources at his disposal. Uh, uh, now the president has the, the, the power to, to destroy the world instantaneously uh, uh, at his sort of fingertips, not, not quite literally, but figuratively, his, his figurative fingertips. Um, uh, 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 and... Uh, I, it is certainly the case um, that uh, I think the actions uh, uh, and words and tweets of President Trump have um, given many of us who have studied nuclear strategy some pause um, about the arrangements um, that 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 that, that uh, developed over the course of decades to um, to regulate uh, how nuclear weapons might be used in a, in an actual crisis. Um, I, 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 my, my own view. Uh, f- first of all, I agree with you that. Um, uh, I, it's a it's it's a, 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 an oversimplified myth that the president just carries around a button, um, or that the you know you open up the the football, the briefcase, and um, and punch in the codes, and 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 instantaneously things things uh, things happen because there are other human beings involved, and 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 they act as or they can act as circuit breakers. Um, in today's world, though. Um, with the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and, and nuclear weapons, um, and uh, the possibility that the president might decide to use nuclear weapons to, to engage in the first nuclear in the first use of nuclear weapons when not absolutely necessary, I think it's I think this is an appropriate time. Um, to take a look at the, the, the legal regime, the legal regulation um, governing the use of the presidential use of nuclear weapons and the processes by which they, they may be used. And, and as you say, Professor uh, Richard Betts of, the, uh, uh, of Columbia University and I recently published a, a proposal on this. Uh, this, is, this is one among several possible ideas, but, uh, but, but, but our idea is that at least for, uh, unless the United States is, is, is under direct attack, the, the, the first use of nuclear weapons by the president would require um, uh, a certification by the Secretary of Defense that that order is valid and a certification from the Attorney General that that order is legal. And part of that, that logic is to try to make sure that there is better deliberation um, that the key advisors are going to be to be brought in. I agree with you. I think ninety nine point nine percent, ninety nine percent of the time, that's probably how it's going to work anyway. But I'm worried about that one percent, and I want to and I want to plan for it. Um, but I also want to make sure uh, that uh, uh, if an order does come down from the president uh, and military officers are asked to carry out that order, um, they, have something, they, they have something more than the president say so, uh, uh, at least under certain circumstances, to rely on, uh, to depend on in making that judgment about whether they're actually going to engage in, in that launch. Uh, like I said, this is, this is a low probability uh, 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 threat here. But the magnitude is so great that, uh, that we ought to think about how we get it exactly right. Well, I think you may finally have found an area where we disagree. <laughs> but the fact that Matt Waxman and Dick Betts think this really gives me some pause. Maybe I'll have to rethink it. There was a 
a story some of you probably heard uh, that President Nixon, the worst hours of his uh, troubles with Watergate, uh, <clears throat> might have contemplated some provocative military act. Uh, Jim Schlesinger, then the Secretary of Defense, is alleged to have said that if any orders came from the White House, they should not be carried out until it was cleared with him. And I used to uh, describe this to my, to my students and try and show them that this is not a realistic fear. I said, imagine a telephone call comes, it's, it's 9 o'clock at night, and it comes to General Scowcroft, who at that time was the National Security Advisor. And the president says, Brent, I've had it. Scowcroft says, I beg your pardon, Mr. President? I said, I've had it. I want to attack Moscow. Scowcroft says, uh, with, with uh, long-range weapons, sir? Uh, yes, yes, I've decided to use the whole thing, the bombers, the missiles, the submarine-launched ballistic missiles, just obliterate the Soviet Union. Will you get back to me on that? <laughs> Scowcroft says, you, yes, sir, I will. Hangs on the phone. Now, who do you think he calls? Does he call the Strategic Air Command? Does he call us, perhaps the Secretary of Defense? No. He calls Mrs. Nixon. He says, what in the hell is going on over there? Has he been drinking? Should we send a doctor over? He doesn't call the generals to launch an attack. We have to separate two very different scenarios. One is one in which there really is an imminent attack. And if that's right, there are thousands of people monitoring that. They're watching radar screens. They're watching satellite feeds. They're watching real-time intel reports. And I'm not minimizing the number or maximizing it. There are thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands, in many countries doing this. And if an attack is made on us or on our allies, there will be many, many people who will know it and want to alert us to that. In that case, timely action is important. But it's only in the context in which many, many eyes have gone over this information. That's to be contrasted with the sort of party story I just told you about President Nixon, in which the president, on a whim, or without the consensus of thousands of people, suddenly decides for some uh, absurd reason to start a war. If we have time like that, then I think it's quite fanciful to say, that a long chain of command will say, yes, sir, absolutely, you bet. I I didn't know we were even angry at Taiwan. But if you say so, I just think that's uh, that's unlikely. And although I take the point about the precautionary principle, I'm not even convinced that it's constitutional to insert the attorney general or the secretary of defense in this. What do you think? So I, I think it is constitutional. I think it's wise. And, and, here's, and it's wise in, in, in two ways. Um, uh, first of all, you and I may just disagree about how much faith we place on the system working the way that we want it to. And I, I, as, as I say, I agree with you that most of the time it's, it's going to work it. It's going to work well. Um, but I'd, I'd like to formalize that the proper deliberative processes to make even better sure that they're going to work well. But th- there, there's a flip side problem, too, which is 
I'm not sure that a, a system where uh, 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 the president issues an order and uh, uh, an informal process of advisors calling each other and asking, is the president okay, should we follow this order or not, um, is very good for presidential authority and civil-military relations either. Uh, uh, that were that to happen, uh, I, I, I think that leaves the president's authority significantly diminished. And so I want to I try to come up with, and this is, I, this is really the, the idea behind the, the proposal that, uh, that Professor Betts and I were working on. We really want to deal with, uh, with both problems, both uh, uh, constraining the president's authority to use mil- nuclear weapons in certain scenarios, but also ensuring the integrity of that process. Well, that sounds very high-minded. It's hard to disagree with. Uh, <laughs> we have some uh, questions from the from the field. I'd like to uh, I'd like to address. Uh, I'd like to begin with this one. Given that modern warfare is so reliant on technology and specialized training, what would it take for a presidential administration to reinstate a draft? Is that even a possibility in the twenty first century, or is Draft a thing of the past. Uh, that's a great question, um, and it's one that I happen to have been reading a lot about because of this uh, this piece that I wrote on on Charles Evans Hughes. Um, because it turns out that in in 1917, when, when so the the genesis of this of this research project and and article was that you know. Charles Evans Hughes, having narrowly lost the presidential election at the height of the First World War, gives this uh, 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 famous address, the key thesis of which is that the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. Um, And what I wanted to understand was, well, what, what was he worried about defending? What were the controversial actions of the U.S. government that he was trying to defend there, and one of the one of the the, the, the big controversies was a was a national draft, or or, or actually a, a selective service system as as part of uh, of, of conscription. Um, and the up until World War One, um, when the Supreme Court in 1918 upholds uh, a national draft, the idea of a national draft was actually very uh, constitutionally controversial. And I, I sometimes ask my students, what, what do you think the argument was? And they say, well, yes, slavery perhaps, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment. It's, it's not that because uh, I, 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 going all the way back to the, to, to the colonies, uh, individual, uh, individual colonies and, and states had drafts. They were, at the, they were at the state level. The constitutional argument was a federalism one. The, the, the idea was states have a constitutional power to conscript their citizens, um, but the national government doesn't. And if the national government conscripts up all the best able-bodied men, then it eviscerates the, uh, 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 the state's militia power. That was sort of the constitutional argument. And it was one, by the way, it was, it was an argument that was very persuasive in the War of 1812, I think helped talk uh, uh, Secretary of War Monroe out of uh, uh, advocating a draft. It was one that was very uh, controversial during the Civil War. But it was one that in, in World War I 
wins the day, or, or I'm sorry, what, what wins the day is, is, is that a, a draft was in fact constitutional. And the reason why I think uh, I, the, the Supreme Court upholds it unanimously is, and, and this is, is, a, is a point about the evolution in military strategy, is that the United States went to war in, in World War I, the Great War, with a big advantage of having watched the Europeans bleed each other dry for three years um, and understood that industrial age warfare required mobilizing the entire domestic economy and required mobilizing and then deploying um, armies of millions of men um, and doing so without disrupting your domestic economic production. So uh, we've the reason I tell that story is that I think the, the idea of a draft um, has historically been constitutionally controversial and has loomed quite large in uh, the evolution in thinking about, uh, about constitutional war powers. Now, bringing that forward to today, um, I think the likelihood that Congress would bring back a draft is essentially none. Um, but I can think of very few things um, that would have as big an impact on the use of the presidential use of military force abroad um, than uh, than conscription. Um, I think it would dramatically change the politics of 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 of, of support for presidential uh, military action abroad if the risks of, of, of that action were distributed among the entire, the, the entire population. Well, every now and then you hear proposals. I know uh, Congressman Rangel used to uh, suggest this, that we reinstitute a draft for just this reason, for reasons of equity, for reasons of uh, spreading the risk, for reasons of concentrating the mind of the public that right now is is willing to let uh, a professional force do its fighting and die. I'm skeptical of this for, just for the simple reason that that's not the kind of wars that we're going to be fighting. The, the wars that conscripted uh, a, a man in the Civil War, World War II, were wars that gave very lightly trained civilians uh, rifles and sent them out in huge formations, giant uh, platforms, to be flung against each other across relatively static lines. Now, uh, we fight wars on a much more uh, technological basis. We don't want seamen peeling potatoes. They're too expensive. We can buy them from McDonald's, frozen. We don't want uh, a young man with six months training going out with a rifle. Uh, they're just cannon fodder. A couple of years ago, we passed the sort of tipping point where we now train more pilots, using that word loosely, to fly drones than we do to fly actual fixed aircraft or helicopters. Our problem is getting highly trained people and retaining them. Because once we have poured all this money into getting this sophisticated person trained, they want to go to the private sector and go elsewhere. So if we drafted a significant part of the age cohort to give the benefits you and the congressman are talking about, we'd have no idea what to do with them. Well, I think 
Could I just add to that? I mean, I think it does depend on what kind of wars you think we're going to be to, to be waging or or need to prepare to wage in the future. And and uh, our, our our good friend Jack Goldsmith up at at Harvard and I wrote about this in, in an article called "The Legal Legacy of Light Footprint Warfare," where 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 where, where we argued that especially during the, the Obama administration, the United States had really moved towards um, uh, a strategy along the lines that you've described, relying on, on uh, sort of ultra-secret special forces units, drone strikes, cyber attacks. These are methods of warfare that allow the United States to, to largely fight from a distance, putting relatively few, not none, but relatively few compared to prior wars, uh, uh, American troops in, in in harm's way, and a danger of that, a danger of that light footprint warfare is that it's less likely to focus political attention and Congress's attention on 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 what's going on. That you are more likely to have less political accountability, less likely to have Congress engaged in serious strategic discussions with the the, the executive branch about are we waging war correctly. And I, I, I you know, it, it, it's interesting that, the, you know, if, if one looks at, at the last year, we talked about updating an authorization for the use of military force for the, the war against al-Qaeda and ISIS. And and probably the the event that at least in, in recent memory, focused Congress's attention the most was the deaths of a handful of, of, of heroic soldiers in Niger, right? Most people didn't even know that we had operations in Niger. Um, and, and, and who would have thought that Niger was going to be the, the, the focus of congressional hearings and, and, and inquiries into, you know, do we have the right... Uh, 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 legislative framework for 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 counterterrorism uh, 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 issues. I think a, a a takeaway from that is that even in this light footprint warfare, um, there are there are U.S. troops in in harm's way, and there are going to be these kinds of events that may focus political attention and congressional attention. I think this has to be. Am I right? The last question. Do we have time for one more question? Well, it's such an interesting question. Listen to see if you don't agree with me. Someone says, how does America declare cyber war? In the changing technological landscape, what's the difference between cyber espionage and cyber war? How should the U.S. respond to a formidable cyber attack? Sanctions? A reciprocated cyber attack? Physical force? I'm so glad you get to answer that. All right, yeah, because this is this is sort of the the, the trillion dollar question, um, and and I should say this was the the subject of a of a of of, of some congressional testimony that I, I gave earlier this year um, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and the the main question that uh, Chairman McCain was asking me was when is a cyber attack an act of war, and being a law professor, my answer sort of began, well, Mr. Chairman, it's complicated, uh, right? Um, and that's not a good answer for, for, that's a good answer as a law professor. That doesn't get you very far with, with Senator McCain, but it is complicated. And, um, and this, is, this is one of the, the big 
legal questions, both as a matter of constitutional law and international law um, of our time, to figure out how do we take uh, 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 law of, of warfare, both constitutional war powers and international law regulating the use of, of, of military force abroad, and adapt it to new technologies, in this case, uh, 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 cyber attacks. Now, this is not an unfamiliar problem. We've had to adapt it to other new technologies, submarines, air power, nuclear weapons. Um, but I think cyber attacks are especially difficult because you're dealing with grave harms that can be inflicted with digital ones and zeros rather than, rather than, 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 than bombs and, 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 and bullets. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the United States is right in taking the position that some cyber attacks um, could be so destructive, even though they're conducted with malware, with malicious computer code, could be so destructive as to amount to a, 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 an act of war, or more precisely, an armed attack that would trigger our right of self-defense and the president's authority to use military force uh, abroad. But where exactly we draw that line is, um, is very tricky, and I don't think we will draw it until we have a real-world uh, catastrophic event that, that forces us uh, uh, to take that response and defend it. That sort of brings us back to the declaration of war. Many people in the public think that a declaration of war either is or, or is required to be the trigger for commencing war. Typically, declarations of war occur in recognizing that a state of war already exists. So it may be that we're already in a state of cyber war. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.